Are you in need of a pace clock? Looking to finally upgrade those ancient analog clocks? The Swim Nerd Pace Clock is the most innovative digital pace clock. It connects to your Swim Nerd mobile app, allowing you to program any set your heart desires. Except for 100 100s while listening to Nickelback. You can't program that. That that is not allowed. If you haven't seen the Swim Nerd Pace Clock yet, go to swimpractice.com to check it out. All right. Great pleasure. Great honor. John T. Skinner, welcome to the podcast. How are you, my friend? Glad to be here. Well, th- thank you. Listen, Ed, uh, I- I've been doing a little bit of research on you today, and I had a chance to, to watch uh, a podcast or, a- or an interview that you just did with a-, with a show called Let's Dive In. I believe it's a South African show, and I just watched the whole episode, and I, and I learned a lot about you, so it was really interesting. Yeah, I did that a, about a week ago, well, yeah. maybe maybe a couple of weeks ago, and uh, yeah. it was kind of fun because you know anytime someone sort of takes you down that road that involves a lot of nostalgia and yeah. stuff like that, it's you know it's it, it always leaves a good feeling in your heart when you finish those things. Yeah, well, there's some really great stories and um and i and i kind of wanted to do a lot of that myself but then when i saw this i was like well why don't i just send people to that and they can watch watch let's dive in so some really good stuff but like one of the things that came up for me was like you've had this incredible career you know for as as a swimmer early on um and then where you came from in south africa and how you came about and then um breaking the world record and being the world's best swimmer and and fastest swimmer and, and and then the career that you've had in in coaching I mean, when you look back on your life, are you just amazed at, at where you've, you know, where you've come from and how you've done things and where you are today? <laughs> you flatter me. You know, I, I don't see myself in that light. I never have. Uh, you know, I just think of myself as just a, a regular person that um, was given, a, given some gifts physically and... Um, I felt like I've always felt like I have um, been lucky to be on certain paths and cross paths with certain people, which is normal. I mean, this is just the way life is, but I feel like I've been lucky to have crossed paths with people that have influenced my life and helped me give me some sense of what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. And, uh, you know, I, I can go back and pick maybe three or four people that I think have been significant contributors to what direction I went. Mm. And um, I think it's part of what, uh, you know, when I just sort of shared a couple of thoughts on that, that uh, WhatsApp app yesterday, I think who you talk to and who you interact with and more so than that, how you take on board whatever information they give you or any kind of direction they give you and the path that you take to, to react to that. And I think, that in itself is a big determination of your success as a, as a human being. And to be honest with you, I, I yeah, I, I could still be sitting here today if I hadn't crossed paths with Coach Gamble, if I hadn't crossed paths with a guy like Bull Boomer, or I didn't have a brother who was, who was an extreme intellectual in terms of knowledge and scope of knowledge and the person who kind of, got me into the whole brain side of thing. He, he was the guy that kind of stumbled into it and said, yeah, I know you're going to like this. And the minute he put me on that path, reading books about neuroscience and the, 
I read one, then I wanted to read two, then I read three and four, and then I kept looking for anything I could get on it. And the more I read about it, the more it just opened just all kinds of doors in terms of thought, in terms of concepts. And um, I love what I do, Brett. I really, truly love to be a coach. And I love to sit down with athletes and just interact with them, get to know them, get a good sense of who they are, help them see different things, and then lay out in front of them what I can do for them in terms of performance and blah, 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 blah. I, that to me is just, I mean, the fact that we get paid to do stuff like that, that's like, it's like, it's like they say this is like cream and cherries, right? It's just, it's just the best. Yeah, that's true. Oh, well, listen, there's so much I want to talk to you about. I, I find you very fascinating for many reasons. And, you know, to be honest, one of the, one of the things about you um, is that you were a competitor of mine for, for many years. You know, you were coaching at Alabama. I was coaching at Auburn. Yeah. And, and obviously the two programs um, have a rivalry. And, um, you know, I don't know if I've ever told you this directly, but I'm sure you knew it. I mean, you challenged me, you brought out the best in me or you, you brought out the worst in me at times, you know, but there were, <laughs> there were times, you know, you, you brought out everything in me, you know, like you, you yeah. pushed me, you know, you were, you were so good at what you did that I was forced to be better at what I did in, in a way. And, and I wasn't always getting that right, but I mean, you have people in your life that challenge you in that way. And you were certainly a person like that for me. So I wanted to at least tell you that, you know, <laughs> No, so, listen, if we don't have those kinds of circumstances, if we don't, if we don't have the opportunity to train and to, to coach kids or prepare or prepare for competition mm. with that type of energy and intensity and stuff mm. like that, I think we're missing out on life. Mm. Uh, I wrote, um, someone wrote a book. Someone's coordinating a book for coach Gambrel. So he is, the book is basically put together by different people through Coach Gamble's life, writing chapters about Coach Gamble, the experiences mm. with Coach Gamble. So I wrote the chapter on Alabama and I wrote it uh, about a month ago. And, uh, you know, just going through that chapter and then talking to people from that period and getting stories straight and just recounting. I mean, that's just, you know, we, we had a great rivalry. I mean, there's dual meets. Oh, they, that that mm -hmm. some bitch from England. I can't remember his name, but we can never beat some bitch. Joe Patching, maybe? Patching, yeah. <laughs> yeah. By the time I by the time I got to like well, I remember the year when Patching was a senior. I said I started out the year with my sprint group and I said, Someone has to beat this man this year. <laughs> Well, yeah, listen, like, I didn't have anything to do with him. I didn't coach that kid. So it was, uh, I probably, it was probably better. I stayed out of his way, but he was good in dual meets. That's for sure. No, but I mean, if you don't have, if you don't, if you, if you don't go through life uh, being able to experience the kind of energy you get from something like that, then I think you're missing out on life. Mm. And I think you want to find ways of, um, inserting that into your life. I don't know how you do that, especially if you're in a sort of a humdrum kind of maybe coaching existence where you have no challenges. Uh, you know, it's nice to be the single person on the top and no one can compete with you because, you know, you don't have to compete with anyone. But to be honest with you, I think it makes us complacent and and complacency is the worst place you can be in, in any profession. It doesn't matter who you are, what you're doing. So, I think we're most alive. We are most alive when we 
are in those circumstances where many, many years ago we were competing. And then we're most alive when we are at those those kinds of circumstances where, man, you, you can just, I mean, the energy is just palpable, you know, they say. And and it takes a while from a competitor like ourselves to try to change gears and go from being a competitor as a competitor to be a competitive coach because you kind of, there's that period in between where you kind of get, you know, in between the two. But, man, I, I love those days. I miss those days. I, I, yeah. I tell stories about, dual meets that we had with Auburn and Tennessee back in the day mm. that are way more intense than we ever had. Mm. I mean, way more intense than we have experienced mm. in, in our period from 212 on, you know, in, in that, that kind of circumstance. Yeah. Uh, some great stories and maybe we'll get into a couple in a minute, but I am fascinated with this, um, you know, the situation that you had in, in 76 where you're the world's, Presumably the world's fastest swimmer. I mean, you proved that after the games, 20 days after the games. But, um, you know, your, your country tells you that you can't go to the Olympics. That must be um, really difficult to deal with at the time. And looking back, how, how were you able to deal with those circumstances? Um, Brett, to be honest with you, I mean, it's, it's one of these things that I think people deal with all the time. Um, I think when they see circumstances, a set of circumstances that someone else has to deal with, they put their thoughts and their opinions and their feelings into that circumstance and they come away with thinking that's what that person thinks and that's how the person felt. And the reality is that um, it didn't bother me that much. I mean, I wasn't too, you know, I wasn't been out of shape that I couldn't go to the Olympic Games. I mean, I knew for a long time growing up that it was not going to happen. And just, you know, there was never going to be a kind of Hollywood fairy tale kind of thing to it. I just had always, from a very young age, because South Africa was borrowed from the Olympic Games from, I think, 64 on. So there was never an option there. So, you know, when someone came along and said, there's a possibility, I said, well, yeah, great, fine. I'm all in if you can get me there. But I really didn't and never did really hold any um you know, feeling that, that oh, oh, please let it happen. I, I just was really about my task and my job. And, you know, when I first arrived at Alabama, I sat down with Coach Gambrell, and you know, we talked about the second year, the sum of the second year as being the year that I really wanted to put the push and it dovetailed really well with the Olympic Games. So it was always that, that was part of the plan, second year adaptation to training. I never trained year-round. I'd never lifted weights. I'd never... <clears throat> You know, I was that ideal kid that came out of high school, you know, that college coaches like to recruit that, you know, have no background, no anything, and that they're all upside. So I think coach was really good at saying, listen, you're two. That's what we're shooting for. And uh, I think it worked really well going in that direction. I mean, going after mm -hmm. it that way. So, you know, to be honest with you, I've said this many times over. One, I felt very lucky to, to have the physical talent. You know, very lucky to have been put into the path to be able to bring it out the way it did. And then I said this, um, you know, if you listen to the uh, Let's Dive In, it was probably the first time that I talked about this. And, and, and it, what brought it out is I listened to an interview that Mel Stewart did with BJ Bedford. Mm. And I thought it was a great interview and a great discussion because they're talking about these family circumstances and some of the embarrassments and some of the things that you have to deal with as family and some of these things that are surround you as an athlete. 
But one of the things that was a takeaway from that discussion was that I realized then that most elite athletes, when they are extremely successful and they win or they achieve, you know, like I did achieve in setting a world record, most normal walking, talking people think of it as being this just wonderful exhilaration, uplifting, crazy, oh my God, you did it type of thing. Mm. And the reality is that it's just this like, oh my God, thank you, I was able to do it. Mm. I mean, I'm just thankful that I don't have to deal with the, the aftermath of not being able to do it, you know, because the drive to push you to be the best, you know, you never consider yourself as being anything less than the best. And you don't even want to consider the, the possibility of having to deal with the mental aspect. Okay. Well, if I wanted to be the best, but I'm only like second or third or fourth and well, you know, so, you know, that a lot of that was just this thanks, the thankfulness of being able to achieve it. And uh, I don't know if it makes sense. I'm sure you understand what I'm saying. And I got the same sort of thing from BJ and I got the same thing from Mel that it was more about, Winning meant that they didn't have to deal with the deal with the issues of losing. That's interesting. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. Um, fascinating, really. You know, isn't it? It's that we we think that way. I, I don't know what you know. You know that you know when you meet people like Phelps or Lochte or you know some of these people that are just driven, committed animals that just want to win no matter what. Um, there are some people that are just driven like that. We just have that thing. It took, it took me a long time in my life to, to be able to just sort of get out of that extreme competitive mode and just become a normal person and just be okay with, you know, not, you know, be okay with, you know, not winning something, you know, and, uh, I don't know. It's just, it's just, it's, it's just a trait that you have. Mm. And I know that, you know, when you, when you don't have to deal with the aftermath of not achieving what you want to achieve, I think you're very thankful for not having to deal with that. I, I, never, uh, I never broke a world record or, or won the Olympic Games, but um, I grew up in a really good family, John T. You know, mother and father, uh, both workers, um, kind of middle class, you know, lived in Sydney, a beautiful city. I mean, gorgeous city. Um, yeah. had a, had an older sister, younger brother. My sister was non-athletic. My, my brother was athletic, but didn't have the discipline, but for some reason, and, and they've, they've lived within a mile of my parents all their life. For some reason, from a very young age, I, I dreamt of something bigger. I, I wanted more. I wanted to, I wanted to put myself in situations where I was challenged beyond the, just the general scope of my, my local community or my city. I wanted to be worldly challenged and so I always had this dream of going to America I was fascinated with America I wanted to put myself in a position where I could be amongst the best uh, the, the thinkers and the and the doers you know people that believe people that supported um, I wanted to be challenged deeply and and so I just had this drive of wanting to go to America all my life I don't know what it is it was just always there and I get that sense that there was something similar going on with you right yeah exactly the same from a, from a, from a young kid from probably 11, 12 years old. Mm. Yeah. Why, why is that? You think like, why, why did you have that? I'm not, I'm still trying to figure out why I had that, but like, have you, have you had come to any conclusions? It, it, to me, it's innate. I mean, I think those things are innate. I mean, my oldest daughter doesn't have it. My youngest daughter does. Yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, she'd throw fits 
you know, when she lost, when she was a kid, when she was a little kid. And I mean, sometimes it'd be kind of embarrassing, but you know, you, you, you don't want to beat it out of them. You don't want to stem it because it's a very valuable thing in terms of being successful because you have that level of drive I and mean, the willingness to push yourself hard enough to do the things that you want to do. You have to have that level of drive and not everyone has. I mean, so a lot how, of people, how do you oh, yeah, keep going? I would say a lot of people daydream about being the best and daydream about mm. winning and all those things and think it's wonderful, but there's, there's a different chord for the people that are willing to just do whatever it takes to get to where they want to go. There's an action piece, right? You have to put action to that, that thought, that belief or that dream. Yes, yeah. you do. You, whatever in your mind, what you think you have to do to get there, total commitment, nothing else. Even if nobody else around you thinks it's the right thing or believes in it or, or understands it, right? Uh, to me, he just tunnel vision is the only way to get it done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I can, I can, you know, attest to that. I understand that more than the other way. Sometimes I see the other way and I'm like, how do you not have that? Like, why do you not want to be better than where you are or your circumstances? Why do you, how do you just get satisfied with where you're at? Like, to me, being average is uh, goes against my nature. It goes against, uh, and it doesn't mean that I think I'm the best just means I strive to want to be better, you know? And so being, being content with being average really bothers me for some reason. Well, you got to, it's a, it's, 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 it's a good subject because I'll share a story, mm. quick story with a, about a guy that we both know, Jay Fitzgerald. Mm -hmm. He was a coach at Pinecrest coach many, many years ago, probably at his best at his peak on the national scene through Cincinnati, Santa Clara, um, in terms of coaching and athletes that he had at the national level. But uh, he, he went through, he, he went through a little bit of college then he did two tours in Vietnam. And uh, then with his, uh, you know, that, that scholarship you get from being in the military, he went to grad school and he went to UVA to go to grad school. Anyway, from there, he ended up in Alabama as an assistant coach. And uh, we were talking in my kitchen one night over a couple of beers and um, he related the story about his first year at UVA coming back and, from the military and swimming and finding swimming and loving swimming and all the, the time and intensity and training that he put into that year and commitment to everything. And his best event was the two and fly. And, you know, he put everything into it. And, you know, at the end of the year, he achieved his goal. And he was so proud of himself for achieving his goal at the end of the year. His goal was to break three minutes in the 200 fly. <laughs> All right, but just think about it now. When I heard him talk about it, when I watched him talk about it, his body language, his energy, his, the, the, the pleasing aspects of presenting something that he was proud of, it was the first time that I really, as a coach, realized that I had to get out of my head and my values and what drives me and learn how to get into whatever is in my athletes heads mm. and learn what drives them. Because if I ever wanted to be able to interact and speak with my athletes, I had to relate it, relate to them from their point of view, not from my point of view. Because if I go all the way from my point of view, I, most people are not going to be able to handle the pace. That's interesting. Yeah, you're right. And I think that's why a lot of people struggle 
being great athletes and then transitioning into great coaches, right? Is, is that, is that idea of like, why don't you understand this? Why don't you get this? This was easy for me, you know, (laughs) and not figuring out them. How come you're okay with that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But, but then, but then understanding, okay, there, there is something that motivates this person. There is something that drives this person. There is something that they, they find encouraging. You just have to find out what those things are. They may be right. different to what you, what you believe, right? And, and you find that on college teams, right? You have, you have college athletes that want to be world champions. You have college athletes that want to be NCAA champions. There's no question in their mind. And then you have athletes on the same team that just want to get a, a degree. They just want to go through college. They want to have a great experience. And they want to be part of a team and they want to get a degree. And that to them is success. And you have to find ways to balance all those different people, right? Exactly right. Exactly right. I mean... It's just, it's just important for you as a coach to, to recognize, I mean, how you present, what they can do, their commit, you know, their contribution to what the program is about. Uh, and I think the biggest challenge you find are those kids on your teams, on college teams that never make the comp, will never make the conference team, might never make the conference mm. team in four years of a college experience. Mm. And how do you relate the experience and how do you make the experience valuable as a, as a coach, I think it's important. And I, and I feel like there are too many coaches out there sort of minimize those people, marginalize them, ignore them, say, well, they're never going to score and they're never any good and they're never going to contribute to my team performance-wise. So, you know, they're just here or they're over there. And I went the other way with those kids. I mean, I worked very hard to help those kids um, get – kind of I worked on them technically and made them better technically, I helped them understand all those things. I showed them as much love as I showed the top end kids. And I helped them. It's like I had a kid that in his fourth year, you know, we started out his fourth year and I looked at him, I said, you know, DJ, you're never going to, you're not going to make the conference team. It's just not going to happen. You know it. I know it. I don't want to sugarcoat it, but what do you think you can do this year that can make this whole college experience just, just be the cream and cherries on the top. Mm. And um, the, the, the foregone conclusion in that meeting was be the best cheerleader, help your kids, push your kids, get after them. And I'll tell you, he did a fantastic job. I mean, he put a lot of emotional energy into training, into cheering. And, and, and honestly, at the end of the year, when you got his ring and, you know, you have the speeches and, you know, graduates and stuff like that, his college experience is as meaningful. In fact, I think sometimes it's more meaningful than the kids that are on the SEC team or on the NC2A team that are winning titles and championships and stuff like that. And as college coaches know, at the end of the day, it's kids like this kid that never made the team that when they're 50 and 55, are going to turn around and give you $100,000 or half a million dollars and stuff like that. So to me, I think it's a mistake for college coaches at any level to marginalize those kids that they don't think can help or contribute to the team. I think they're essential and I think you want them there. And, um, you know, I think it's very an important component to the whole process. Well, listen, you've always been about high performance, whether it be in your own swimming life or, or coaching at the highest level for USA swimming and, and the resident coach. I mean, you've always been about high performance. So how did you, what advice can you give to, to coaches, um, to help you understand that process of, yes, it is about high performance and it is about winning and it is about 
championships and, and, and those are important for sure. But how did you come to terms with the other side of it in terms of the athletes that you're just talking about? Well, I think at the end of the day, it's about, you know, I, and I've written about this a lot lately and I, and I, funny enough, I'm a very technically oriented coach. I'm very science technique, technique, technical oriented in terms of skills and stuff like that. But I found myself talking a lot more to coaches mm. in the last couple of months in, in, in the articles I've written and everything that has been um, based around, it's important that we, you know, we see each athlete as a human being, forget about the athlete, forget about the performance, we see them as a human being and our interaction with them as a human being to a human being in terms of knowledge and understanding and cultivation and help and direction and everything about what I do is there for them. So to me, it didn't matter whether they were the best athlete or the, the, the worst athlete. I was really, I really look forward to getting to know them and finding out what music they like to listen to and what their, what TV shows they like to watch and what favorite movie and sitting down and just kind of getting a good feel and picture for who they were. And I found that, you know, in, 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 in getting to know young people, um, I think in helping them understand who they are and what makes them tick. Really, in a lot of cases, I'm just helping them understand themselves. Um, I find that when I find that I improve on the athlete on a holistic level, mm. which I think is that emotional self-image holistic level, performance comes along for the ride. Mm. It really does come along for the ride. So to me, it was, it was this, it, you know, it's kind of like you have days where you're working on your training sets and your performance sets and stuff like that. To me, working on a person on a holistic level in helping them be better and thinking better thoughts and believing more about themselves as a human being was as important as a training session. You know, I would give up a training session to do that and spend time doing that versus just doing another training session yeah. and then having a kid that was still somewhat broken trying to figure out who they were and what they were doing when they got to the SECs type of thing. So my advice to all coaches is spend more time understanding who you're talking to and who you're working with. And they're all different. They all have different things. And it's not just the superficial crap, you know, getting to know name and business. what's your degree again? What are you studying? Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Type of thing. Really get to know them and, and keep notes on them and have books, you know, notebooks on who these people are and your interactions with them and discussions and, you know, so when you get into that next discussion with them, you, you review your notes. And so you, you, you sort of, cause you're dealing with a lot of kids and there's a lot of stuff going back and forth. But to me, that's an important task for a college coach or a club coach or any coach for that matter to understand that if you improve the athlete on a holistic level, everything gets better. It's fascinating that you say that and it's kind of timely because I, I was watching this show on Netflix that just came out last night called The Playbook and it's a series of interviews with some incredible coaches um, and, and um, one of the coaches was Serena Williams coach, a French, a French coach and he was talking about the same thing. It's like, you know, people told me don't get close to your players. It's like, that's, that's rubbish. It's like, 
get close yeah. to your players, understand them, who they are, what drives them, you know, what motivates them, what, um, you know, how they get encouraged, how they get discouraged, you know, find out everything about them. And, yeah. um, and that's interesting. I had a question here in the coaches group that we're on from uh, Albert Subarats, who's, who's an incredible athlete himself, now a coach. And he was asking what separates an average coach from a great coach. So, um, you know, somebody that is really uh, into the science like you are and, and into the technique, it sounds like you also have uh, you, you're well-rounded. And I think that's the difference between a, a good coach and a great coach is you're not just stuck on one aspect of the coaching. You find yourself being so well-rounded that you're looking at all the different aspects of coaching, correct? Correct. And I think that's the key. You know, it's, it's like, um, it was the, to, for me, the science part came, came easily because I'm very, my brain operates on a very comfortably in a scientific level, hmm. neuroscience, all those things, you know, it just, it's sort of a natural thing for me. Um, people, it took longer with people, especially because I was the athlete I was and driven as I was. And, you know, it took me longer to understand that part of the component. And, you know, I had some really good assistant coaches in the 90s. Uh, I, I would really credit Sonia Porter as a, you know, Sonia. Yeah. And uh, Sonia's fantastic coach, mm. um, who was the person who sort of started to help me relate to especially on the woman's side getting to know women being able to talk to women mm -hmm. talk to female athletes um you know i learned a lot from the people around me i listened to them they talked to me i was very open-minded about um getting information from anyone and everyone so to me that was the last little piece that kind of came into just just understanding at some point, I don't know when it's sort of these things kind of flow together. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, to me, I think my strengths today are more on the people side because I've pushed really hard to become better at that side, which I think is the most important side. And to me, an average coach is one that doesn't care enough about the people that they're working with. Mm. And two, they're fearful as a coach that they don't know anything about what they're doing. You know, and what do you, what do you mean by that? Let's dig into that a little bit. How do you, um, why would you be fearful about what you, what you don't think you know, or, or you're not doing, or, or you don't know? Like, um, talk to me about that a little bit. Okay. Come on. In your twenties, we yeah. were both, we were both coaches in our twenties. hundred percent. Yeah. Right. How much do we know about coaching? Yeah, I mean, it was just like on the fly, on the fly. Nothing, <laughs> you know. So, you know, and I and I, I had a long conversation with Dave Marsh the other day. Because, well, I didn't have a long conversation. I had a yeah. conversation with him, and well, and I listened to his podcast with Mel Student about talking about when he worked with Mel Scoot as a young coach. Mm. And I'm thinking, Dave, you actually said to the this guy's an Olympic level talent, but you still. You know, yeah. you talk to him like you knew everything that you needed to know about butterfly type of yeah. thing. So yeah. I think there's a lot of, there's a long period of your life where you're really flying by the seat of your pants because sure. you don't know what you're doing. Um, but I, I think um, you have to understand that that's part of growing as a coach, gaining that kind of experience. But, you know, you have to always be driving yourself. And I know this is a point that uh, I, I talked about in that thing. I think. Too many coaches um, want to look at the best and hear what the best have to say and uh, try to understand what the best are doing. Um, and they just put their, that's where they're looking and that's wrong. 
and I and I think yeah, those are good guidelines, and there's a good thoughts, and that's a good thing that's sort of out there that maybe you want to get to one day. But there's a really famous coach in the SEC that uh, has this statement that says, "Live where your feet are." And uh, he coaches the crimson and white team. But um, anyway, live where your feet are, right? Know where you're standing. Know where you're standing in life as a human being and as a coach. And, and if you can understand where you are, who you are, what you know, what your goals, what your ideas, what you're willing to do and how you're willing to do it, then you can move forward, right? So you can build on what you know. But if you keep trying to jump all the way to the peak level, or you keep trying to do things that you hear peak level people are doing and think that all of a sudden magically your kids are going to have that same experience, mm. it's not going to happen. Mm. I mean, young coaches, your biggest challenge as a young coach is find out what you know. I mean, find out what, what do you actually believe in? You know, and then start interacting with people around you to help you kind of find a path that you're going to follow and explore, you know, and take the time to sit down at the end of each season and analyze what you've done. I, I remember when I was a young coach, uh, probably my third year as a, as a, as a head coach at, in, a, in a team in California, and I was really getting into the science side of it. I was really getting into the technical side of it. And uh, I finished the season, and the season was pretty good. And uh, there was another coach in our, in our area of another club team that I was good friends with. And I said, listen, I'm coming over to your place, and I'm going to break this breakdown in our entire season. Let's break it down. Every yard we do, just figure out what we did. He goes, great idea. Come on over. Man, I was over there at 8 a.m., started working. You know, it took me till probably about three or four in the afternoon to get through my entire season to break it down and put it all together. And we didn't have freaking computers. It was all hand and, you know, kind of calculators and stuff like that. I mean, I went through the whole thing. My friend, I'm not going to say who my friend is, <laughs> but he was on the couch with a beer by 11 o'clock. He didn't care, you know. So to me, you know, it's, if you're going to be in this profession, you're going to have to really kind of work hard at understanding what you're doing and being able to, you know, relate what you're doing um, to other people. Because one of the things that's really helped me as a coach, and to be honest with you, Brad, I, think, I wish more coaches had the same mindset, is when I learned something new and I felt good about learning something new or discovering something or seeing something that I thought was interesting, I shared it. Mm. I shared it with my friends. Mm. And in listening to my friends talk to me back about what I was talking to them about, I said, well, okay, that idea wasn't that great. But after listening to you, I think this is where we need to go. So I actually gained more from sharing. I think too many coaches kind of feel like they know what they're doing, but they don't want to share it because they don't want to be, they don't want the competitors to know. And I think that's a huge mistake. I think my biggest development as a coach was always sharing and I was never shy about you know oh god if I share this with someone I might look like an idiot if I say what I say type of thing never feel that way you know any I've had coaches now come up to me on deck and and talk to me about something or ask me a question about something and I'll stop right there and take the time to share my thoughts with them and teach them right there on deck and I mean I, I was at the U.S. Open last year in December and I had a coach listen to some of the things I had to say about feel for the water. 
And he said, it's not this way. And I said, no, coach, it's not really that way. It's actually this way. And these are the reasons why it's this way. And he was like, he was like scratching. He was like, okay, coach, I'm going to have to go think about this. I'll come back to you <laughs> in another day. But I was great with that. And, and I love the interaction because it is, 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 is crazy as it might sound, even a coach at my level with my knowledge and understanding of the performance science side of, of swimming, even when I interact with a coach that is four or five years or six years into the business, even their questions and their observations make me think. And I can't tell you how many times even a coach at that level has helped me put a piece of the puzzle in place. You know, yeah. I help them put a couple pieces of puzzle in place. They help me kind of mm. augment what I'm doing. So the interaction is always good. And, and I, I and find coaches. Coaches need to find someone in the area that they can just talk to. Why they're doing what they're doing. Have their coach play devil's advocate with them. Because, again, if you're sitting on top of the hill and you have no competitors, you don't live. If you're sitting at the top of the hill and you never talk with anyone, you don't grow. You know, to me, you've yeah. got to talk to grow. Well, listen, it's the reason why I love doing this podcast is it, it, this isn't my job. This is just a hobby, you know, like I, I, yeah. I get paid to do something else, but, um, but I love listening. I love, I love talking and I, and I love hearing different perspectives and uh, there's a lot of stuff that is similar in these conversations. There's some stuff that comes up that's a little bit different. It creates thought, but I just love, I love listening. And, um, you know, we, we, like, again, we were very fierce competitors and I don't think we would have always had a chance to sit down and talk like this but now in reflection we can just sit and we can chat and there's no uh, you know it's not you trying to hide something from me and i'm trying to hide something from you it's just us sharing and trying to grow the sport and give back to the sport that we love right amen yeah it's, um, hard. it's, it's yeah. hard to it's hard to sit down with the old guys and say hey, oh yeah have you ever tried this it's really good <laughs> oh listen right, look look johnty if i'm going to be purely honest here uh, there were times where i hated you you know i didn't want to talk to you at all you know i was like damn it that guy's kicking my ass you know like i don't want to talk to that guy so uh yeah uh, i 100 get it but um, you know one of the best pieces of advice uh, i ever got from uh, from 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 a young coach uh, from being a young coach um you know starting out in the sport from the moment i decided to start coaching david marsh who was my mentor said to me he's like brett take a pen and paper now right now you've just retired from swimming, take a pen and paper and write down everything you learned, write down everything you believe in, write down everything you think worked for you, write down all the things you don't think work for you. Just start writing and, and putting things down because a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, you're not going to remember any of this stuff. So he's like, as, as a, as a person who's just coming out of swimming and going into coaching, what, what type of coach do you want to be? He challenged me in that way. What do you believe in? How do you know, how do you want to structure workouts? I didn't even know how to write a workout. I wouldn't, uh, you know, I thought swim coaching was easy. And then I sat down and tried to write a workout. I was like, this is really difficult. I don't know what I want. So then I had to really figure out who I was and what I wanted to be and what type of coach I wanted to be. It was one of the best pieces of advice I ever got. It's something that I really remember to this day. Good advice. Yeah. I, I had a, you know, in my interactions, I, I kind of kind of do stuff on Facebook and probably somewhere around once a week, I put something out on Facebook for coaches to read or challenge them, of, give them a question, something to answer. Um, and this young coach wrote an entire manual 
uh, it's about 120 pages wow. on how to write workouts if you're a coach that hasn't been in the sport very long and sent it to me, you know, and said, listen, can you, so it took me about three or four days, went through it, you know, try to reorganize it thinking, but I, I think young coaches, it's, it's, it's actually, I'm, you know, we're not, when I was a young coach in the eighties and I was a young coach in the eighties and nineties, um, interacting with the people that were above me, like Skip and, and uh, George and some of those people that were above me. I mean, I was always ambitious and driving and, mm. you know, always charging, charging ahead. I, I didn't, didn't, I didn't have any fear charging ahead. And I, and I hope young coaches are the same way. Don't, don't feel shy about walking up to elite level coaches. If you run it on deck, you, you walk in, you know, don't feel shy about walking up to someone like Greg Troy, who's on deck now. Mm. Um, and uh, if they're obviously not watching a swimmer and they're obviously not really doing anything, don't, don't feel shy about walking up to them and say, coach, I've admired you for a long time. You know, I'd be really interested in your thoughts on X. You know, that's the perfect segue into getting some information from a coach at that level. But the key is for young coaches to don't be shy about that. Yeah, you know? absolutely. I agree. Yeah, we're, we're all approachable. And, and I don't really, uh, and I'm sure you're the same. You don't think of yourself as an elite level coach. So you're above people. You just say, no. think of yourself as a coach. And Correct. if somebody comes up to you and asks a question, you, you feel honored, you know, that, oh, wow, they're, they're interested in my opinion. That's great. I'd love to give you my opinion. So uh, we're certainly all about that. There hasn't been a coach that I've met that hasn't wanted to, to share, you know, especially in America. We're very open to sharing and because we've always believed that look the better you get the better i get right we've always believed that you know if jaunty's if jaunty's good i gotta get better because i'm competing against jaunty so he's forcing me to get better and i think that's always been the american way and which i've loved you know i agree i mean i it's been a lot easier for me to share some of my like i you know there's some things that i've discovered through developing of young kids you know, that uh, were like cutting edge things that I didn't always share with my rival, rival people, mm-hmm. but I shared sure. them with people that were not rival people sure. to get things. So like, I, I always kept an edge back there since I've retired, I've let, I let it basically all go. And there's still a lot that I have in my head that I have not still not shared with people that I think is really good to share, but it'll come in time. Well, and when is the I, book coming out by the way? You know, it's like there's so many bits and pieces and parts spread out all over everywhere. Um, you know, I've spent more time writing um, on different areas and different subjects. And I haven't even gotten into the technical aspects of free. Like I haven't written the chapter of freestyle, backstroke, or breaststroke, or butterfly. I've done all the brain, the brain, how the brain does this and how the brain does that, and blah, 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 blah. All that side. Uh, I don't know why I've left the technical side component last, but I don't know, maybe next summer, somewhere in that range. Well, I was talking to one of your athletes uh, a couple of days ago and telling him that I was going to have you, or one of your former athletes was going to have you on the program, uh, Zane Waddell. And Zane, uh-huh. and Zane just wrote back, the man is a wizard. How do you get to wizard status? <laughs> Well, it's just, it's just when you know so many things. I mean, you, yeah. you've been around, when you're around enough people long enough, and you know you know it is, and, and when you, 
you know, there, when you see it, you know, every kid's sort of unique, but there are a lot of similarities between kids and there are a lot of similarities in terms of um, how you deal with them, how you approach them. But uh, I'm really technical in the science ed. So when someone like Zane comes into my environment, yeah. who's never really had a lot of technical coaching, sure. and then um, put him into the environment and then teach him and sit down with a screen and video and look at it and go back out. And then just as he learns, then you can put another piece on the pile and say, okay, now that you've learned X, I can teach you Y. And once you've learned why, I can then teach you Z type of thing. So it's, he was always in that type of learning evolution type environment. And I relate everything on a neural level you know, to them so they understand how the brain manages everything they do. And I, and I think someone like Zane is very um, analytical anyway. I mean, really, that, that stuff really appealed to him. And, and he, he absorbed it and took it on board and enjoyed it and you know, we get along really well. I mean, he's a great kid and uh, we, we sort of two peas in a pod with that guy. Mm. Yeah, great kid. I lo- I've had a little bit of interaction with him. He's uh, swimming for the LA Current now as a pro. So that's exciting, you know, so good for him. Um, but like, uh, what what are the must-haves you think in terms of, you know, if you're if you're talking to a coach who's saying, hey, this year, these are the things – I want to do, I, I want to be successful this year. What do you think are the must haves for a coach? What do they, what do they have to be doing? Are we talking about a young coach, mid coach, any coach? <laughs> just, just any coach really, you know, like what, how, what do you think coaches? I mean, it's a very broad question, but like when it you, is. if you were going into, let's just say you, for instance, you're going to go into a season and say, I want to be successful this year. What are the things that you feel like, that the things that you do now that you're just like, these are the things I do on a regular basis that make me good. I know are good. And so I just put them into who I am and what I do. Okay. So I think number one, let's just, it's good. Let's just take, I just went through that brief period with kids in Indiana. Yeah. Sure. You know, so here I was, when I was in Alabama, I had a constant flow of kids coming into a system. Mm. And then I took that system brand new. No, exactly. no one up there knew anything about the system. Yeah. So, you know, to me, everything about developing a, a group and, and, you know, developing a group of athletes, number one is you have to understand your athletes. You know, you have to know who they are mm-hmm. as human beings. Yeah. And then you have to really watch and study them in the water and understand what their strengths and weaknesses are. To me, okay. you have to have that. And, and I figured out, you know, with the group I inherited, I watched them for a while. And um, I figured out pretty quickly that they didn't know much about swimming. Yeah. I mean, they just didn't, you know, what they were showing me in the pool and stuff. So I stopped them one day and I stopped them all at the shallow end of the, the outdoor pools. And I stay and I had about my group and there were about three or four other kids in the group that day. And I stopped them and I said, and I looked at them and I said, what's the quickest way to go faster in the water? And they sort of looked at me like he asked us a question. You know, and I said, yeah, come on, you know, what's the quickest way to go faster in the water? And they're like, now they're scrambling to try to come up with anything. You know, and they're like, kick harder, you know, stroke faster. And I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah, but what's the quickest way? You know? <laughs> and they had no clue. So eventually I said, just, just reduce the drag. And they're like, ah, oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> reduce drag, you go faster. That makes sense. You know, and then I look at them and I go, 
how do you reduce drag? <laughs> like, Damn, that's just another question. You know, so to me, the, the answer is study your kids, understand who they are, and then work on a plan to teach them how to get better. And it's, you can't carry the water for them. You cannot fish for them. You as a coach has to teach them how to fish and teach them how to carry their own water, which means that you have to begin the process of educating them to understand the sport of swimming. Now, I had no problem, I had no problem sitting down with any freshman who came in to the program and say, listen, as a freshman, you're going to begin to understand what freestyle is about. As a sophomore, you will be able to start thinking that you can actually contribute to what you're doing as a freestyle. And by the time you're a junior, you'll be able to teach it to everyone else around you. Mm. You know, by the time you're a sophomore, you should be able to interact with anyone on the, the sport, the subject of freestyle mm. and speak intellectually and understand the dynamics of what you're doing. So, you know, to me, they need to carry the water, uh, you know, fish or whatever way you want to put it. I think we're disadvantaging, we're hamstringing our kids as coaches if we do not teach them to understand the sport. And in my point of view, I wanted them to understand the sport on a skill technical level. And then I wanted them to understand the sport on a physiological level. So when I put my season plan together for them, I explained to them exactly what we were doing during different phases and why and how their, what their contribution needed to be in order to capture the, the full essence of that phase of training. And uh, so to me, all coaches need to sort of, okay, we can have a season plan and we can have a, a way of going through it like base period, you know, endurance, speed, taper, whatever, you know, the generic plan type of thing. But I think more importantly than that, we have to be able to teach our kids what it is they need to know about swimming. And they're all unique. I mean, Zane is unique in terms of things he needed to learn. I had a brand new set of people that I had to teach freestyle from scratch. I mean, Ray gave me this freshman freestyler and his description to me was, you're really going to like her. She's over six foot tall. She's a little green, but mm -hmm. she's going to be great. You know, you guys are going to get on great. Well, I watched this girl swim for about a week and a half, and I walked over to Ray, and I said, Ray, it's not that she can't swim freestyle. Mm -hmm. She has no clue what she's doing. She yeah. doesn't know anything about yeah. freestyle, yeah. none. And no one has even taught step one to her, you know. Yeah. So, you know, I had to kind of rebuild a stroke from scratch, you know. That, that's and, tough. When you see that, you're like, oh, wow, this is a long yeah. mountain to climb. It is. It is. But the, 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 from my point of view, I know how to do it. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't have a problem approaching any kid. I can teach him freestyle from scratch. I know it's going to take three to four months to do X, the X, you know, you know, 12 to 18 months to, to fruition mm -hmm. at the worst two yep. years that yep. I know it's, it's going to be really good at the end of the pipeline. But the, the key is that I have a choice as a coach with this athlete, right? Who was already swimming, uh, I think she was a 25, 8, 15 meter freestyler, and she was taking 56 strokes. Mm, damn. Okay, Ooh. so this, where do you go? Where do you, mm. where do you go with that, right? 
So um, she didn't have a kick at all. <laughs> no kick. Oh, it was just a, it was just this mad thrash, right? And uh, I mean, she was over seventy cycles per minute in the first ten yards, ten meters. Yeah. So, well, know, let me so, ask you that. In relation to that, you know, I, I'm fascinated um, in, in sprinting. You, you know, you and I are the same in that respect. I I, I love speed, and, and I love freestyle too, to be honest. Um, so how do we get faster right now? How, how is it? How does a man, most, of, most of the top athletes in the world right now are 21 flat, you know, how, how do we get to, how do we take a second off that? If, if that's even possible, how do we take half a second off that? How do we go 20 point in the 50 meter freestyle? How do we go 46 flat in the hundred freestyle? Are these speeds possible for us? Can we go 20.0? Can we go 46 zero? No, not us. We can't. No, I can't. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> Some other specimen. Uh, as, a, as human beings, yes. Really? Yes, I oh. think we can. And, and, and to be honest with you, you know, I, let, let's look at the evolution. I, I think let's, let's, let's go through a little bit of history. Sure. So if you look at freestyle, the way it evolved, um, it was the most noticeable thing to me when I took a trip to Australia about 2008. And I visited um, maybe five or six club programs. And what I came away from uh, visiting Australia and looking at those programs was that there was a lot of institutional knowledge being passed down through the ranks that everyone had to have a very high elbow catch mm -hmm. leverage position. Definitely. Yeah. Everyone. And it was, I mean, everyone had a nice traditional kind of recovery and everyone had to be in that position. Yeah. And it was institutional across the country. And I was really intrigued by that, that how that had evolved. And uh, whereas if you go to any pool in America, you get a hodgepodge of straight arm underwater, high elbow. I mean, it can yep. be anything, right? Yep. Um, and then, you know, America, I mean, America, Australia was going through a period where they could not produce, they didn't have any sprinters. Yeah. I mean, they just didn't have any sprinters. You know, the, you know, Andrew Belden, there's some guys through the years that sort of looked like they might be the next thing, but they had no depth in spinning till all of a sudden they developed spinners later on in the yeah. late to, you know, in the late 10 to 10, 8 and on yeah. beyond that period. And I think in part because everyone was stuck in this high elbow catch position at yeah. that time. <laughs> no doubt. Um, and then you had the technical suits come along. And then all of a sudden, you know, people that had this high elbow anchor position were just completely wiped out in the technical suit era by these straight arm, mm -hmm. straight arm recovery, you know, you know, or straight arm under leveraging positions yep. that could sustain velocity for longer periods of time because they had the technical suit on. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the biggest shame was in 2007 when Phelps raced uh, Hoogie, Peter Van Hoogenbaum, and Phelps just destroyed him on that last turn in the 200 free in the 200 free in, in Melbourne. And Hoogie came out and said, well, not some in the 200 free in uh, Beijing because clearly it's Phelps's race and I can't beat him. I'm going to go to my favorite race, which is the 100 free, mm. right? So Hoogie doesn't even enter the 200. All he is is enters the 100. In that interim period, the suits just go crazy. I mean, the suits that came out late 7, 2008 are nuts. And what people are doing with the suits and stuff like that, he didn't even make the freaking final. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't know if there was a high elbow guy in the final in Beijing. I don't think so, no. 
I, I, I don't know if there was. Mm. So, you know, freestyle has evolved to where we have a combination of, if you can get this hybrid where you get sort of a, a tweener between a straight, complete straight arm like Anthony Irvin, you know, to not the high elbow like the old Aussies, but that sort of hybrid in between with this sort of throwing, connected throwing kind of action, what I call kinetic energy action on the top side, then I think we get the best of both worlds. And when you can take what you have from the suit area, which is the shape and the tension and the level of tension in the mm. shape and the line and the position and the position in the water, um, and the, just how the timing all goes together with legs and shape and tension and connection, yes, I think it's doable. You know, it's going to have to be probably, if I say the athlete, probably somewhere in the 6'6 range that has to be able to jump 35 and above inches off the ground type of thing. I mean, it has to be someone in that realm um, that has a lot of FTA fiber. For the yeah. 100, specifically. For the 100, yeah. Maybe well, not so much for the 50, but definitely for the 100. Who, was, who I mean are some people best. right now, you think? Uh, you know, I mean, you, you worked with uh, a guy like Zach Apple at, at Indiana. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm thinking of a prototype type person, you know, somebody that's tall, somebody that can hold their range. Like, who are those people in, in this day and age that may be able to get to kind of those speeds? You, can you see anybody doing that? Um, I'm sure they're out there. I'm sure they're there. I think Zappel is one of those guys. I mean, maybe, I mean, because he's got a good aerobic engine in it. Yeah. I mean, he does. He has a good aerobic engine in him. You know, and the biggest things in helping him, in, you know, in that whole lead up into the, the U.S. Open in December, and he had some really good races in December. All I did was I was just teaching about his shape, yep. managing his shape. Because it was very loose before, or very loose, but there was some tightness that could be gained in that sure. area. Yeah. And then I helped him understand a little more on the connection side and put him into drills environments where he could, his brain could understand how to manage it. And the more his brain understood how to manage it, his start got better, his transitions out of his start, he carried his speed a lot better. Um, and I think that contributed significantly to the times he did in December. But can he be one of those guys? Yeah. You know, does he have the genetics? I don't know, but he certainly has the physicality. That's an interesting it. point that you brought up there in terms of the, the endurance and the aerobic capacity. What, what, how much does that play into the 100 freestyle these days? You know, it used to be a major component, but, you know, from, from a guy like you, what, part does that play now i still think it's a big part to be honest with you i you know i, I don't know uh, you know i someone's probably proved me wrong but i don't know that a you know an ftb sprinter can 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 compete at the hundred level and someone that's trained in a pure ftb environment which fast which glycolytic type you know type sprinter because I just don't think they, they, they make it all the way through. I still think the, the aerobic guys just, just freight train them the last 25, mm -hmm. you know, every time. So yeah. to me, I, I feel like the athlete that really makes the difference is, um, has more of an FTA fiber combination. And I think that in your training, in the way you train them, has to, if there's any swing fiber in there, it has to be swung more to the FTA side 
than to let it swing to the FTD side. If you understand, you understand what yeah. I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So more like a more like a Kyle Chalmers. You know, Kyle's having a lot of success, obviously, and he's trained more in that realm. Uh, and even even as Apple, you know, Zach Apple, who is is trained, you know, can do some 200 work, but also is is in the hundred realm. Um, you think it's well, you know, let's let's be honest. Even a Caleb Dressel's doing a lot of work with Greg Troy. He's not being coached as a pure. 50 freestyle he's certainly doing a lot of 200 work right you know caleb dressel is a very unique human being you know when you look at caleb and you look at his anthropometry you know his upper torso size length of his legs is very phelps phelps and dressel body proportions very very similar in terms of the you know the lengths from the hips to the head versus mm. the legs so mm. Naturally, they balance much easier in the water. Um, I watched Dressel when I was down, um, and when he was a junior in high school, he was the club team was over on the side. I was talking to someone. He did a run dive, mm-hmm. and he floated all the way to the other side. He did a run dive all the way to the other side, and I thought, wow, that's rare. Yeah. You know, so he's not heavy in the water either. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't do that if you're heavy in the water. Um, so he has a lot, a lot of really good qualities and you talk to Greg and, and how Greg trains him and stuff like that. And he trains him from a very aerobic side from the background. Um, you know, I think he's the best of all worlds. He's got the explosiveness. He's got the natural balance. He's got the anthropometry. He's got the engine. He's certainly got the mentality, you know, um, does he have the height? That's probably the only thing that's going against him right now. He's not super tall. Yeah. I have a thing. If you take that guy in a six foot six, six foot seven body, goodbye. Yeah. I mean, there's no one in the world that touches him. Mm. Yeah. You know, and I'm still, I still watch him. You know, I watched, he had some starts um, that he did the other day. I watched on, uh, I don't know who did them, filmed them, came up. You know, there's still things he can get better at. I've watched these races. There's still little bits and pieces that he can get better at. Well, yeah, well, that's it. I mean, it gives us hope as, as humans that we are capable of getting faster, but it also challenges his competition to say, hey, if this guy's getting faster, you better figure out how to, how to get it done yourself, right? Yeah, yeah well, it's, um, it's the excitement that, to me, that's, that's the juices that you get with a coach. And you're sitting down. I mean, I, I love coaching anyone at any level. And, and like I said, I don't mind coaching the kids that never make your conference team, I have as much fun coaching them as I do coaching like Robert Howard was the last guy that had known Zanes and those people. Uh, it was much fun coaching them, you know, and what makes it exciting at the top end level are the little bits and pieces that you have to put into play and get in place to be able to even give yourself a chance at being someone like Dressel, you know. So, you know, to me, God, it's a great, it's a great, it's a great sport to be in. You know, I, I don't know if coaching swimming is as exciting as coaching some other sports or, uh, you know, it's very linear. You know, swimming, thankfully, is a very linear sport. You know, everything is, you know, A, B, C, D. It's easy to manage. It's, it's not very complicated. Technically, it's not super complicated. I hate, you know, it's, it's tough coaching. Like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an avid fan of soccer. You know, I analyze soccer games and, and, you know, I have a soccer presentation for soccer coaches in a month or so. Um, it's a complex 
you know, to me, it's, it's, it's extremely complex sport to coach and develop athletes in, you know, I love swimming and I love the thing about it, but it's, it's not, not super tough to do. Well, listen, there's the, um, scientific and there's the physiology, um, but at the end of the day, we both know that the, the psychology also has a huge part to play here. So Monster. how do we, how do we um, coach people to break barriers, let's say, or, or beat somebody that is perceived to be unbeatable, like a Caleb Dressel? You know, you, you broke a barrier. You, you broke 50 seconds and you broke a world record. So the, these are perceived barriers that all of the top athletes are trying to attain right now they're also trying to beat somebody that they may not think they can beat you know like a caleb dressel see you always have that person out there that you know especially on the world level who's like a sarah sostrom a caleb dressel you know uh katinka hosu you know these athletes that are like wow i i can't compete with that person so how do you coach somebody to say yes you can compete or yes you can beat them or even break a barrier like like what you did well, to me, it's, it's, it's teaching them, it's convincing them to control what they can control, to, to manage what they can manage, and to become really, really into doing that. And it sounds easy to say it, because it's not easy. Yeah. But the, the key is just putting kids on a, in a position where your job, your job is to manage all the circumstances and preparation in order to put yourself in a position where you execute what you can execute. That's your job. It cannot be anything else. That is simply your job. Put yourself in a position, and if you can execute at 100% of what you have, regardless of the circumstances, you can walk away feeling proud. I got to tell you, that sounds very Nick Saban like. You know, you've obviously had you've had you've had a chance it to is. probably spend some time with him, correct? No, but I mean, you. I mean, I listen to when he's on and he yeah. talks. He's worth listening to. Yeah. He's, you know, <laughs> once in a while, some reporter gets like someone draws the short straw <laughs> in the reporting pool and they says, "Your job to ask him this question," and he freaking blows up and he blows up the meeting. But, I mean, there are a lot of great Nick Saban statements that yeah. uh, I think are very valuable to all coaches. But um, you can only do your job, you know, and your job is to do your job. You know, and, and football is tough because he always talks about eye candy and all the stuff that goes along with it and mm. distractions and, you know, the confusion. That's, that's part. It's all subterfuge and confusion. And, um, you know, but, you know, to me, swimming – is like it just came back to it's a, it's a linear sport it's not a quantum sport you don't have to know the relationship a to b to c to d in moving parts going on around you all you have to know is how to get from a to b and to do it as effectively as you can you know and as an athlete and a coach you know you analyze what you've done do that stronger you know everything has to have a quantifiable the great thing about swimming is everything is quantifiable. That's math. Racing is math. Everything can be analyzed. You know, if you want to improve, you know, the worst thing you can do as a coach is say, okay, we're just going to train harder this year. Mm. You're going to go faster. Bullshit. You're not going faster. Mm. You know, have a specific plan that's going to attack specific things that are improved. 
you know, with targets, absolute targets, because, you know, if your athletes had a series of um, ceilings and targets that they have to hit as we go through the season, and then they know what those ceilings and targets are, who takes ownership over those ceilings and targets? The athlete has to. And you have to put it into an environment where the athlete takes that on board, which comes back to teaching them, you know, teaching them about the sport, teaching them how to take ownership on the, the sport, you know, just all those things are part of the combination, that holistic side, the kind of the technical side, bring it all together into this athlete and empower them to take control over who they are and what they're about and what they're going to do. And then your job as the coach is just to help them execute what they want to execute. Um, again, you know, if, if you work with athletes, it, it takes you probably at least a year just to get to know an athlete, at least a year. Mm. You know, I don't think you get to know you. Yeah, you get to know your freshmen a bit, but you really, really start to understand them as a sophomore. Mm. And, and to be honest with you, they probably start to understand you as a coach, as a sophomore. Yeah. You know, type of thing. So, because they're so, you know, the first year relationship with you and an athlete, they're probably really, there's a lot of trepidation and fear on their part. You know, you don't know enough about them to help them kind of relax that and release that. You know, so the second year is really the year that you can really make the most uh, ground with regard to helping kind of develop and understand and kind of develop both holistic and performance side. And, um, to me, I think when you feel like you're, you know, you're undermatched or you're dealing with a Dressel or you're dealing with a Manadou in his heyday when he was in complete, you know, shape and size and stuff like that, you have to be able to put him in a, put your athletes in a position where they take complete ownership and responsibility. Well, listen, man, uh, it's been fascinating and I really appreciate this. You know, like I said, we've had times where we've been fierce competitors, but I've always, uh, deep down had a, an immense respect for you whether you knew it or not so um uh i thank you for be willing to do this and look honestly this is just about um telling your story and kind of putting putting it in history you know like this is a little bit of a history right here where you can look yeah, back on this or your family can look back on this I, I like this format but also think that coaches can come back and listen for years uh, to exactly what you have to say and learn from it so i really really appreciate this thank you very much john too Brett, I enjoyed it. All right. Take care, my friend. Cheers.